The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 339 for Monday, June 27th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions. We provide the answers. We sometimes ask questions of our own. We all send in tips. We help each other out to learn a little bit more about the Mac and other Apple products here from Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here on planet Earth, John F. Braun. Welcome to Earth, John. I'm glad to hear you're back. <laughs> I didn't leave. I, I, I was just following your your trend from a prior show of being uh, non-specific. L- about less location. than specific, right, about location. Okay. All right. Well, if that's how we're going to go, then, you know, there's, there's one upsmanship here. So uh, next episode, whenever, whenever the next episode is, uh, because my guess is we will skip uh, next Monday because of it being the. Uh, oh, Independence Day. The oh. holiday Independence Day. And the fact that I'm going to be away, uh, we're leaving, uh, we're leaving later this week to head to. Watkins Glen, New York, where we will join countless thousands of other uh, fish fans. And uh, oh, is this your camping uh, quarry? Yeah. yeah, right. That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, I gave you. I gave you this weekend. <laughs> I gave you my suggestion. The canned witch. Yeah, I can always rely on you, John, for uh, great culinary advice. You can order. You know, I, I got to order some just out of curiosity. I, I just saw this. So for the, I don't know. Yeah, you can follow them on Twitter, but it's it, it is a sandwich in a can. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I think they're going to roll out some of the different flavors. But hey, in a pinch, hey, it's better than shooting squirrels or you know or eating bugs or something. I guess. Paul had a comment on show three thirty seven, and thank <laughs> goodness he did. Bring us back to earth, Paul. Hey guys, it's uh, Paul calling from Los Angeles. Just uh, listening to the most recent episode, and uh, thought I'd weigh in. To Connor P's uh, question about restarting versus logging out and how much time it might take, uh, I always log out whenever possible rather than restart because I found that when you use, run a lot of applications and you want to get back to them, especially if they're hefty applications, um, after logging out and logging back in, those apps will relaunch a lot quicker than after a reboot. Uh, I've got actually uh, I use Quick Keys and I've got a script that launches about a dozen different applications, so I just press one button and everything's launched and I've uh, realized time and time again after a reboot uh, it happens pretty quickly but after a logout login it happens a whole lot quicker just my two cents thanks Paul that's uh, that's handy advice in fact you know John uh, let's go let's go off the map a little bit here and even though this isn't a follow-up Scott had a question Scott from the UK had a question And he writes, uh, I've got a question for which I just don't seem to be able to find an answer. Basically, I have a standard SATA hard drive in my iMac, and I was wondering if when I boot up, I could tell the Mac to preload certain apps for me into memory. So, for instance, whilst I open Safari and I'm using that, I might get mail and say iPhoto loaded into memory in the background instead of waiting until I launch the app myself. So when I finish with Safari usage and then open mail, it opens much faster. Is there a third party app to let me preload applications or is there an app to keep the, an eye on the most common files I use and get them loaded into memory in the background while I'm doing other stuff? 
If a hybrid drive has the intelligence to store the most common files accessed on the SSD part of the disk, why can't there be an app to load these files into the free RAM available instead? So uh, clever reordering, Dave. Why, thank you, John. Uh, So, you know, Paul's comment actually provides uh, some level of an answer to Scott's question that there is no way of telling it only load these libraries. You know, what's happening is applications are built up of uh, libraries that the uh, programmer or the developer of the app writes, and then also uh, libraries and frameworks that are part of Mac OS 10. And so uh, when you launch an app, it lo- it loads as much of that as necessary into Ram. And of course, that's what uh, Paul was talking about in terms of logging out is a lot of that stuff stays in Ram unless that Ram is needed for something else. And of course, if it's not, then it makes launching the app the next time much, much faster. Scott wants the same thing. Uh, there is no way to tell the system, as far as I know, John, to load all of that stuff into memory uh, without simply launching the app. But but something like Quick Keys or or really, you know, any any program that can script stuff, you could just tell it launch these five apps and walk away. In fact, you could tell it launch them and then quit them uh, and it might, you know, still help you out. But you've got to launch the app first, as far as I know. Right. Is that right, John? As far as I know, it- and I want to add a few things here. Yeah, so I've noticed one thing, especially after. So there are a few things the system does to load as much as possible or that makes sense. So one thing that I noticed, especially after, and we'll talk about software updates maybe later in the show, but after you do a software update, especially if you um, change kernel extensions, I've noticed this in the console, you will see that the system rebuilds a kernel extension cache. Right. And that's like, the, uh, so that's the pieces of the OS that it deter- that it will, I think, glom all together and load in upon startup to try to make common operations at a very low level uh, happen quicker. As actually, far as applications, actually, no, that, the extensions cache, to my knowledge, uh, is all those extensions are going to load at startup anyway. And, and my understanding of the extensions cache is that it uh, takes all of the extensions and instead of loading each file bit by bit, which then goes, you know, uh, much slower than loading a large file. It saves as long as the extensions themselves don't change. It saves all of those in a cache and just loads the cache in one fell swoop. I believe that's what the extensions right. cache is. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. Right. I thought that's what I said, but maybe it is. Maybe I, I misinterpreted. So now you've heard yeah, it two but, ways listeners and uh, yeah. hopefully, hopefully, but, but you will notice that, that the system and maybe I'll find it in a moment here, but, but you'll notice that the system, when it detects a, a, an important, uh, a kernel extension has changed. It'll say, oh, well, th- this kernel cache is now invalidated, so I'm going to build it again. Right. Um, so, yeah, it will, it will do it quicker. Now, the other thing I noticed, Dave, is, is while you were pontificating, <laughs> I did check something. No, because I noticed this because, you know, that this has occurred to me, the wisdom of restarting versus logging out and logging in. And one question that I had in my mind, and I just verified it yep. on my MacBook Pro. Now, one thing, as some may know, is that um, what, what are we going to call it here? The um, swap file. Yeah. Now I had a question in my mind. Does the swap file get cleared out when you log out or do you have to restart? And I just answered oh. the question, at least on my MacBook. And the answer is, if, if iStat Menus is telling the truth, which I trust it is, is that a logout and a login will reset the swap file to zero. No. Um, well, I, I, well, all might. I know is I, well, I saw this happen. I, I just had my machine. It showed that I had a swap file. I logged out. I logged in and it said the swap file was now zero. So now a swap file is not created per user. It's created 
by uh, by the root process, right? And so it's not a user level thing. Now, what? And it is. Well, why did I see swap? I've got an greater than you. zero, and then I logged out and I logged in and I saw it go to zero. I have I have an idea. Uh, Great. And this might not always happen, but but it obviously happened for you. So. The swap is created by the system and managed by the system, and it's not a user level thing. Uh, However, it will the system is smart enough to grow uh, the swap file usage when it needs it. Right. So uh, in, in most Unixes, the swap is not stored on the same drive as the uh, rest of the operating system. It's stored in a separate, at least a separate partition and usually a separate spindle so that it's just, you know, there's one uh, device spinning that holds swap with Mac OS 10 for a lot of reasons. They didn't want to do that because it's a kind of a confusing setup. So swap is created as files on your, on your boot drive. But because of that swap only needs to take up as much space on your disc as the system has deemed necessary. So it will grow it. It starts at zero. Uh, actually, it doesn't. It starts, I believe, it's 64 megabytes uh, of space on your disk, even though it's possible none of that would be used. Uh, so it starts with a 64 meg file and then grows files, and they get exponentially bigger up to a gigabyte. So it goes 64, 128, 256, 512, one gig, I think. Uh, and then it, at, at one gig, it just keeps adding one gig files after uh, one after the other. But when you when your RAM usage goes down. Swap usage goes down. So uh, and the system actively and sometimes aggressively manages that to keep your disk from being filled up by unnecessary swap files. So what I'm guessing, John, is when you logged out, you reduced your RAM footprint enough that the system went and and the, uh, the kernel or the dynamic pager. I think that's the name of the mm. process. Dynamic underscore pager went and reduced your swap usage. That's my, okay. that's my theory. OK, no, I'll go with that, because uh, like you, I thought it was a system level thing and that you, well, I think a, a restart is guaranteed Oh, the, to, a restart uh, to will, clear out the swap, but I found it unusual. Yeah. So, so thank you. But no, yeah, I found sure. it unusual that a logout, at least based on what ISTAT menus reported, uh, seemed to reduce it to zero. Yeah, it's possible. Well, it did. For, from what yeah. I saw, it did. Yeah. I mean, because you know, I logged if back you're the in only, and it said zero. If and you're the only user I, logged in, uh, you know, and I, I mean, I've seen this on other machines that, you know, that I run where like the machine at the house, we've got multiple people logged in all the time. And so swap usage always sits very high. But if you're the only one uh, that's logged in and you log out, well, then memory usage kind of by definition is reduced to a, a bare minimum. Right. It's only what the system needs and, and the rest will go out. So, yeah. All right. Um, sponsor number one for this show is Stitcher. Uh, Stitcher is an iPhone, iPad, Android, BlackBerry, you name it, app free that lets you listen to podcasts. The cool part is uh, you don't have to uh, download them. You don't have to sync with iTunes. You just go into Stitcher. You mark shows as favorites if you want, or you can just navigate through their library and uh, and find a show and then just start playing the most recent episode. Uh now, Stitcher, for, for those of you that have been listening for the last uh, couple of months, uh, Stitcher's obviously a sponsor of the show. That's why we're doing this spot. And as you've probably heard, they have uh, a way for you to sign up to win an iPad. And the way that you do this is when you install Stitcher, you have to give it an email address and a password. You've got to sign up for an account. It happens very quickly. But you can also put in a promo code. And that promo code 
is MGG. Well, many of you did this over the last couple of months, and the winner for the first month is a longtime listener to Mac Geek Gab, Michael Plaisance. So uh, congratulations, Michael. His, uh, I believe his iPad is, that's right, there you go. We don't have a clap track. We actually do this for real folks. Uh, thank you, John, for the, for the applause there. So, uh, so check out Stitcher. You can download it from the uh, uh, App Store, you know, for, for your iOS device. Uh, you can also go to stitcher.com slash MGG, and that'll actually tell you all about uh, how this works. And you can even send yourself a little reminder email from there. And uh, and when you sign up, make sure you put in the MGG code uh, that actually automatically will mark Mac Geek Geb as a favorite uh, in your directory already. So it saves you a step there. And then uh, and then perhaps you, too, could be like Mr. Plaisance and uh, win. Uh, win yourself an iPad. So congratulations, Michael. And uh, thanks to stitcher.com for uh, supporting the show and, uh, and for supporting our listeners. So stitcher.com slash MGG. And with that, we actually have a question or a, uh, yeah, I believe it's a question. It's a, it's a follow-up from a couple of shows ago, but it is from Michael, our winner. He says, Hey guys, I was listening to show three thirty three and heard how you were all talking about file sharing enabled. And when going to a public place, others can see your computer. Now, I don't own a MacBook. Instead, I have two iMacs, so I never experiment. But I believe by default, when you enable file sharing in system preferences, it only shares the user's public folder unless you add other folders in system preferences. Because I'm on my own home network, when I set up for the first time the two iMacs to share, when I click the other iMac from the Mac, when it's shared volume mounted, it was only the public folders of all the users on that Mac. It was not until I clicked connect as and logged in that I was prompted, you know, with a username. And then I could see all of the other files and folders of that particular user. Uh, of course, in my own home, I checked the store password and keychain so as not have to log in every time. But my point is, how will with file sharing enabled as its default, that will that allow others to see your Mac? And that, again, is for Michael. So congratulations, Michael. Um, so uh, he's right. By default, the only thing that shows to the world is your uh, public folder and I believe a Dropbox folder where people can upload things to you. Uh, and, and then if you log in, of course, you can see everything. From my standpoint, the big risk is that you're simply advertising. When you have file sharing on in some public place, either a hotel or a coffee shop or whatever, it advertises that it's on. And it, you know, especially in a hotel where you might leave your computer for several days, you know, somebody could set something up and just start banging away at your, uh, at your password. So that that's, that's my thought. I don't know what you think about this, John. No, you don't. Mm-mm. But you're, you're going to find out. So there's a couple of aspects to this. I, I was actually fiddling around with this because there, there, there are two parts to this. Okay. So one is I think you touched on is that there is a guest account. All right. So if you go to your accounts and you yeah. look at guest account, there is a checkbox saying allow guests to connect to shared folders. Right. And actually, my recommendation would be to totally disable the guest account. And you can do that by when you look at the guest account, you'll see it in the list of accounts. Just uncheck all the boxes next to it. Right. Because I think that poses a risk. Now, you still have to turn on file sharing in order. So if you just have allow guests to connect and file sharing is off, then nobody's going to see your machine. Or at least I verified that on my simple setup here. Right. Because um, that, that'll allow guests to log in at, at the login box from your computer locally. But but until you turn on file sharing, that's right. Yeah, right. But but I'm with you in that any time you turn on. 
file sharing within sharing, you know, you click on the file sharing box, as long as you have one or more shared folders, whether it be the public folder, which, yeah, as you stated, Dave, allows a Dropbox. Now, even that you, you may yeah. think is not that much of a risk. The only risk I could see with that is that traditionally a Dropbox is so the, the only thing that can happen is people can come along and put files onto your computer. But even that, you know, somebody could be a jerk and fill up overwhel- your hard drive. And, exactly. Hey, and, you can copy your swap files because they're a gig apiece. You can just <laughs> track them. <laughs> no, don't do that, folks. Yeah, but 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 I'm with you. Is if you don't need to do it, make sure it's disabled. Yeah. And, and I think uh, we we wagged our finger in the, in the past at Apple, and I will wag my finger again. Is that file sharing is not the only place within Mac OS X where your stuff will show up on a network. Um, iTunes and iPhoto, and I think even Aperture mm. have their own sharing setups. And if you're running the appropriate program, whether it be iTunes or iPhoto or, or even Aperture, if other people are running that program and enable sharing, then you will see their machines show up in some sidebar or someplace in the program. And let me tell you that uh, based on the hotels and airports that I've been to, uh, people may not always realize this and or share things that uh, should not be shared. All right. That's all I'm going to say. Good. That's good. Because it's time to start answering some uh, some some specific questions that might actually, uh, you know, provide some uh, valuable little tidbits of information. That's what we're here for. So Johnny writes, uh, since iCal changed the way that it worked, I've been stumped as to how to set the default calendar on my iPhone. On my Mac, I now have three calendars, one under on my Mac labeled calendar and two under my mobile me account name, one with my name and one unfiled. In the past, everything went into the calendar under the mobile me account name with my name. This is how it still works on my Mac. However, on my iPhone, everything goes into the on my Mac calendar. Although I read online that this can be changed in the iPhone settings, I don't seem to have that ability. I would like to, everything to go into one account under mobile me. Okay, so... Uh, there's actually a couple of questions here and, uh, and, and Johnny and I have followed up back and forth with each other about this, but so number one, uh, your iPhone needs to see more than one calendar in order for you to be able to change the default and, uh, or, or enable, or for the default to appear as an option in the settings. And that obviously makes sense because if there's only one calendar, then it is by default, the default, uh, so once you have more than one calendar on there, you go to settings, mail contacts, calendars, and uh, scroll all the way to the bottom and you can set default calendar to your liking. Uh, so that's, that's step number there. That's question number one. Now for him, uh, his mobile me stuff was not, uh, syncing to his Mac. What this tells us if, if, uh, if we follow what we just learned, where, the default calendar is always the only one on your machine or on your device. If there's only one, then it stands to reason he only had one calendar on his iPhone. And indeed, that was the case. It was only the one labeled on my Mac. Now, that only gets synced to your iPhone these days if you're syncing uh, calendars via USB. And, in, and sure enough, Johnny figured out that he was uh, changing calendar syncing to be over the air with mobile me. Uh, would solve his problem. And indeed it did. Uh, he now is able to, uh, to do that. So uh, that, that's, that's sort of step, uh, step one with, with syncing and you turn the syncing on in the same place. You go into that settings, mail contacts, calendars, and then pick the account 
uh, and in his case, it would be his mobile me account, tap on it. And you've got a bunch of little sliders and one of them is next to calendar. If you switch that to on now, it'll start syncing those calendars over the air. And, and sure enough, that worked for him. And then he was able to choose a default and, uh, and all of that. So that's, uh, that's that stuff. Uh, you know, as an aside, if you are a Google calendar user, there's an interesting thing that happens. Uh, you can set up Google calendar uh, on your iPhone by, by setting it up as an exchange account, believe it or not. Uh, and then you put in your Google, you know, your Gmail username and password, but you'll still only see one calendar come from Google on your phone. Uh, despite the fact that you might have, you know, dozens of them up on google.com slash calendar. And the reason for this is that by default, it doesn't show any of those. It, Google doesn't push any of those to the iPhone. And there's a secret little web page you have to go to. And that web web page is m.google.com as in uh, mobile.google.com slash sync S Y N C. And once you do that, then you'll be able to see a list of all the devices that have attached to this Google calendar. You pick the one uh, that you want to edit, and then you'll see a, a checkbox, a bull list of all your calendars. And you just tap the ones you want on. You have to go to this from your mobile device. If you try to go from your Mac, it, at least in my experience, reroutes you around. So you got to do this on your iPhone, but it's not that bad. And then magically all those calendars show up. So that's, if you're syncing with Google calendar, uh, you've got to, go through that extra step and that, and you need to go through that anytime you add a new calendar, it will not by default appear on your iDevice. You've got to add it. Uh, you've got to, you know, go to that m.google.com slash sync webpage. Crazy stuff, John. I don't know why they make us do that, but they do. I remember, I distinctly remember that. Yes. I'm going to jump through hoops on my iDevice in order to get things that I thought should be there yeah. to, to show up. Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, certainly non-intuitive, but right. Yeah, I'll yeah. find the page like like many so that they had a a obscure. Yeah, there is uh, some knowledge base that tells you this. I, yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not obvious. Should it should be like they should scream it at you from the from treetops or something? <laughs> is that where they do that from? Or the mountaintop? That that would be it. All right. <laughs> uh, while we're on calendars, Mark's got a question. Hi, Dave, John, sometimes Pete. This is Mark from Denver. Got an issue with iCal and CalDAV. We use a Google Calendar for family appointments and have both a MacBook Pro and an iMac, both running Snow Leopard, that subscribe to the Google Calendar via CalDAV. My wife keeps non-family events in her iCal calendar as well. Calendars under on my Mac. She occasionally creates an entry in the wrong calendar. If the event is created in an on my Mac calendar and later moved to the CalDAV calendar, Everything works as expected, and the entry is synced to the CalDAV calendar. If an event is created in the CalDAV calendar and later moved to an on my Mac one, the event remains in the CalDAV calendar. Do you have any idea why things behave this way and what, if anything, can be done to fix this? Cut me off now. All right. That we shall do. Uh, yeah, so this is interesting, right? Because... Uh, and I've seen this too. The, the real answer is stop using the on my Mac calendars uh, with mobile, especially with mobile me having moved to CalDAV uh, and, and I'm presuming and iCloud is going to use the same type of CalDAV server that, that part is that, you know, that kind of trend, that transition has in, in a sense already happened at least on a technology standpoint. So uh, iCal really isn't built to have, I don't think is built to have, 
stuff syncing out and also then stored locally. It, it tends to get confused in my experience. So, so I would just put it all on her mobile me. She doesn't have to share it all with you, but, but at least that way, the I, I Cal seeing it in one place. If you do want to do it, I know busy Cal is actually a, a lot more reliable than, than I Cal in this regard. And it manages the CalDev server a little bit, a little bit better and actually uh, has a, a little bit more capability there. So you could use busy Cal on her machine to, to manage that a little more properly too. So those are, those are my two thoughts. I don't know. You, you probably don't have any on my Mac calendars anymore. Right, John? Well, you know, this brings up a good point, Dave. In that I, I don't, I don't know if you can get rid of that from yeah, iCal. You can. I think you just highlight the calendar and choose delete. Really? Yeah, I think so. You think so? Hey, look at that. Did that work? Well, I see it as an option. I'm. You're not going to uh, choose uh, it because you don't want to remove it, but I get, I get uh, it. Yeah. But no, but, but you know, the, but this brings up an interesting point because this is something that I've wrestled with. And I think you, you may have actually, I just assumed there wasn't a way to get rid of it. It was built into iCal because what happens and I've run into this annoyance as well is as far as I can tell the default behavior of iCal, when you create a new appointment or event or whatever you want to call it, is it defaults to the on my Mac calendar if it's there. Right now, of course, if you click on an event, you will see when you edit it, you will see there's a calendar menu and it shows you all the different calendars. And I've I've done this often in one direction where I've created something and then all of a sudden I see that it has the color, you know, so for example, on one machine, it's green. And I'm sure. like, oh, man, I created it on the local calendar. I didn't want to do that. And then I go and I put it on the blue calendar, which is my me.com sure. calendar. I, I've never done it in the other direction, which which was the problem brought up here. And I don't right. know why they don't purge it. I mean, it should. Yeah, yeah. Issue a cancel or whatever the heck it is. I move things regularly between because I have calendars hosted on both Google and mobile me uh, that I use in my in my daily life. And invariably, I'll create an event on one that needs to be moved to the other. I I don't that the calendars aren't differentiated by purpose necessarily. It's 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 sort of convoluted, but it doesn't matter. Uh, But I move stuff back and forth between them all the time. So I, I think that that uh you know, it, it, it works. It does purge. There's not a problem, at least not a problem with me doing that in inside busy Cal. So that it, it may just be an iCal bug that, uh, that, uh, Mark's wife is running into here. You know what? I just took a leap of faith. Okay. Well, I just deleted the, yeah. uh, on my computer calendars from both my machines because they're awesome. both in front of me and, and nothing bad happened yet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> the only thing now is that it doesn't is that if I if I start up iCal, I don't know what it chooses as the uh, default. Oh, no. All right. It chooses the first one in the list, which yeah. I'm going to have to move that because right now Gmail is the first one. And I, I would like um, my me.com calendar. I wonder if I can just move it. Or, I oh, think you can just that. move the category. I am just moving it. Yes, yeah, you so are right. So I just slid gr- it down. You're grabbing the kind of the light gray name of the calendar. Yes. that otherwise doesn't appear clickable. Yep. This is live. The, the, this is edge of your seat excitement here. So I just did that. Right. I'm going to start up iCal again. Double click. Look at that. You helped me solve my problem, Dave. That's what You're we do here. Amazing. We help each other. I, I'm, I'm going to sign up for premium now. That is a good <laughs> idea. You know, for 25 bucks for six months, you get an extra two episodes a month. Uh, you get access to all the archives, uh, not just six months worth of archives. So you can go back and hear the first episode. I'm not saying we recommend that, but you can. Uh, and then of course 
The, the, the most important part, I think, is that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get. And it's not just the sun outside. It is the feeling of, that you get from supporting your two favorite geeks. So MattGeekGab.com has the link to that. So I, I'm so happy it. that I just solved my problem. Right. Right. On live radio, uh, live to tape, live to hard disk radio podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Is now now my, my stuff defaults to the calendar. I want to put it on and I was able to delete without any ill effect. As far as I can tell. That's right. My on my computer calendars. Awesome. All right. All right. So Joshua has a question for us. He says, uh, I've got, uh, he says, I'm kicking it old school here with my power Mac G4 and encountered a Ram problem. I was adding some Ram. Uh, it has four PC 100, 133 slots. And the next startup, I got three beeps. I believe that set of beeps means that no Ram banks passed memory testing. Uh, when I opened it up, there was a burnt toast smell. Uh, I pulled the Ram and noticed that one of the, chips had four golden connectors burned off and the slot from whence it came had a small burn mark where the, where the connectors would fit. Both had the unmistakable smell of burnt toast. I've tried putting Ram in all the other slots, but I keep getting three beeps. Here's my question. Could this bad Ram slot have affected all the others? Am I horked or is there a way I can bypass this and use the other three? Joshua, I think you let the magic smoke out, man. You can't do that. It's the, it's the computer runs on magic smoke. We've talked about this before, right? And when you let the magic smoke mm -hmm. out in that puff, now the computer can't run anymore. It's true of all electronics, John. They all run on the magic smoke. I, I verified this as well. It doesn't smell like toast to me. No, it's ozone. Unless, unless, unless he eats some, some weird toast. <laughs> I, I've, I've never equated the, the smell of burnt circuit board or electronics with, uh, with uh, toast. So Yeah. But yeah, but there is that it is a unique smell. It's ozone that you're smelling, actually, at least most of the time is what what that turns out to be. But um, I think the I think you're I think you're horked, man. Uh, I think the bad ram did hork your motherboard. But well, I it can happen. Well, but I'm well, I don't know if I'd say the entire motherboard, but, but here's the problem that I have, Dave, is right. that so I did look up the pinouts on this type of memory slot. Okay. Uh, my suspicion was that maybe the chip was not inserted correctly. Okay. Or maybe something was off by just a little bit, though. But because I looked at the pinouts. So for a lot of these chips, the thing is, is that they're both voltage and data lines. And I would suspect, and I've seen where the, the voltage lines, which is typically either 3.3 or 5 volts, if, if you put that in the wrong place, like on a data line, that's meant to be, you know, data. Right. Uh, then you could certainly fry the chip itself. Now, now maybe that propagated throughout the the memory portion of the uh, computer. But I, I'm just struggling with that because most of the memory slots these days, unless these are older style slots where it, the potential exists for you to misseat the chip or get it off by a pin, or it was a poorly manufactured chip. Right. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, as you've seen, Dave, I mean, a lot of these are keyed and that you, you can't put the chip in the wrong way. No, it's tough. It's tough. It would have to be something wrong either with the slot, which presumably had a different chip in it prior. So it's not the slot um, or RAM, it, you know, I mean, just bad, bad RAM. Uh, if it's got a short somewhere else on the chip, then that could easily, you know, jump back to the, the spot on the motherboard. To Okay. Right? I, I mean, it's possible. I've, I've, I've never had it happen. I think the only thing that I've 
well, causes. So here- when I hadn't put the chip in properly is that, uh, yeah, it could burn out the, the memory portion. I mean, not, not the motherboard, though essentially, right. yeah, I mean, if you can't get to the memory, then yeah, you're, well, that, <laughs> yeah, not that, useful. that's the thing. So, so to me in the end, yeah, your motherboard's horked to, uh, to use your term again. Uh, I love that term by the way. Uh, but it's, uh, it's horked, not entirely like you said, John, but if that one chip slot is horked, maybe that's the first one that the memory system power on test checks and if there's no ram in it then you can't run i mean if that's your first slot then you know if that's bank zero as it were then you need you know there has to be a chip in there and if there's not then then you're done so that it's possible that in that sense yeah you're stuck unless you're gonna unless you're willing to re-solder things on and off the motherboard it doesn't it doesn't really matter what else is working right (laughs) right i mean you're it's done which stinks well, I, I suspect it's more than just the socket, though. I mean, I suspect yeah. it's probably some memory controller <laughs> chip. So, wow, <laughs> you know, if it's if it's old enough and and you know you're handy with a soldering iron or uh, you know if it's surface mount, then then you're getting into yeah. It's a. Uh, I mean, I wonder if the question here is you know can you go after the uh, the people that made the memory and blame them for the uh, for the problem? Be tough to prove. Oh yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you have the chips, I mean, especially, you know, if they look at the chips, I mean, he's indicating that, you know, there's there's damage to the chip and they're going to say, well, you know, that's that you that's did that our problem. Right. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Neelix writes, my three year old iMac will soon be out of warranty. And I would like you to talk a little about what Mac users should do before their Mac warranty expires. All right. Uh, <laughs> Neelix, if that is, in fact, your real name. Um so there's a couple things I do. The first thing is I send, I, you know, within the last month of, of, uh, of warranty, I try and find some reason to send it in to, uh, to Apple care. And, and the reason is once it's in, they tend to look at everything. And if they find something, they'll do this at any point during the, the tenure of, of you having Apple care, not just at the end, but if they find anything, you know, you might send it in cause the, uh, screen is clunky, but if they, if if they deem that the hard drive or the DVD drive is shot, they might replace both of those. And heck, while they're at it, they might swap out the motherboard too. So uh, I've done this many times and more often than not, I wind up, you know, three weeks before the warranty runs out with a machine that's had almost its entire guts replaced. And sometimes even a keyboard, you know, on laptops, because those tend to wear out pretty quick. And then you get another 90 days out of that, but not only uh, do you get the 90 days, but you get new parts that tend to last a whole lot longer. So, so that's the first thing I would do. The other thing I would think of John is to, if there are any upgrades or repairs or anything that you're thinking about doing, like for example, if you're going to add an SSD um, or perhaps, uh, you know, add more Ram or whatever, do that now, right before the warranty expires. If something goes wrong in the process and it can't be blamed on some, you know, idiot move that, uh, us users make, then Apple will cover it. And as we've heard, maybe they'll cover even, even an idiot move. So, uh, so it's worth doing that while the warranty is still uh, in effect. Uh, so th- those are the two things I thought of John. What about you? <laughs> I don't know how serious I am with this advice, but the first thing, when I read this question, the first thing that popped into my mind was the song, shake it up, baby. Wouldn't that be twist and shout? Exactly. All right. Now, I don't know if I necessarily recommend, 
uh, my thought was maybe you want to, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this advice. I mean, you, you may want to, uh, how about I say you may want to stress test the machine is maybe run it under demanding conditions. And I don't know if I'd say you necessarily want to shake it physically. So again, that's what popped into my head, but you might want to run Apple hardware test. Um, you may want to run it under extreme, you know, test all peripherals. I think you suggested that day, but if you didn't, you know, check the DVD drive, uh, you know, check everything that's in the machine. You know, even if peripherals you haven't used in a while, run Apple hardware test, uh, you know, check the Bluetooth. If you don't use it, check the airport. If you don't use it, check all the ports to make sure they're functioning properly uh, to identify anything that may be marginal or maybe about to fail. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm going to say you probably shouldn't physically shake it maybe give it a little nudge how's uh, you, no no, no I, li- I like it i think that I, you know i mean it that's I mean, the same it, reason well, i wanted to put you know swap out the hard drive or ram or whatever you're gonna do you're shaking it up baby i mean the reason i mentioned it is that you know the, the, say hypothetically there is a connector that that that's marginal or kind of loose and by nudging it you, you you'll shake it loose and, and you right. will then avert disaster now, you, you, you know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, throw it out the window. <laughs> no, that's that's bad. That'll 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 exhibit outward signs of physical abuse. Right. That, that that will almost certainly not be covered. But um, so I, I corrected you and I wasn't entirely correct, John. Uh, that song was no. originally written and titled Shake It Up Baby, uh, recorded by the top notes. It was then the Isley Brothers that uh, that covered it and called it Twist and Shout. And then, of course, uh, the Beatles covered it and and kept it as Twist and Shout. So, uh, so Shake It Up Baby was the original title of that song. There's things yeah. you learn. But I think all of us, yeah, as soon as you hear that, you think Twist and Shout. And yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I looked it up. I see Beatles. A lot of, uh, many people have, have done this. Yeah, oh, right, right. Those were kind of the, the Isley Brothers and the Beatles were the first, you know, that's what people look to as the, as the quote unquote originals, although apparently neither one of them is. Uh, all right. Uh, you know what? Let's talk about our uh, second sponsor for this show. And that is audio engine at audio engine, audio engine is uh, a company that specializes in audio equipment, speakers and various other amplifiers. They just, they know how to make things sound good. That's really what it comes down to. And, uh, and nowhere, in my opinion is that, evidence more than in what they call their a fives or audio engine five speakers. Now these are what they call bookshelf speakers. Uh, they are, uh, they're 10 inches high and seven inches wide and seven inches deep. Uh, there's two enclosures. Each enclosure has, uh, two speakers. One is a, a woofer, kind of a bigger lower end speaker, and then a tweeter, a higher end speaker. And they've also got a base port on the back of both of them that help really help round out the sound. These things, these, they crank, they've got their own amplifier built in. It's actually built into one of them and it powers both. It's a stereo amplifier. Uh, and so the amp and the speakers are perfectly matched in that, in that way they're self powered. And, uh, and it just, it, they provide such a great sound and you can really crank them up and, and not hear any distortion or, or anything. Uh, on the back of one of the speakers, the one, the left one, which is the one with the amplifier, that's the one you plug into the wall. That's the one you plug your computer into. Uh, you can also plug, you know, your iPod in. It comes with all kinds of cables that you would need. 
uh, to do that. And it's, it's got an AC outlet on the back so you can power things there too. And it's got a USB power port uh, on it as well. If you just want to power your, your iPad or iPod, either one, uh, these are three forty nine dollars uh, from audio engine usa.com. You can save 10% by using the coupon code MGGTEN for Mac Geek Gab 10 TEN. Uh, and that'll save you 10%. So you save 35 bucks off the price approximately. And, uh, and then here's the thing. They, they have what they call their free audition uh, in that you get them. And if within the first 30 days you decide, you know what? These just aren't for me. Maybe they don't fit where you thought they would fit or, uh, or, or, you know, perhaps another reason you send them back and they'll send you all your money back. There's no restocking fee or anything. Uh, so that's, uh, that's how you qualify for that, that audition. It's all at audio engine, usa.com. And, uh, and we are happy to have them as a sponsor too, because I'll tell you, I love using their stuff. I almost always listen to music through some kind of audio engine speaker. I was, um, had the family over for Father's Day and I was yeah. cranking the oldies, um, on them. And, uh, there's no replacement for displacement, I think is, uh, that's right. <laughs> that you got it. That was uh, Andy, right? Shared that with us. Andy from they uh, crank. New Hampshire. Love it. All right. All right. Where are we? We're on to Dustin. Uh, he writes, I can't recall where I learned this, but I was hoping you'd help me undo it. I thought I had written it down somewhere. Anyway. My current setup is that anytime I click on an app in the dock, my system automatically minimizes all other apps. This has been quite handy for me, but we recently included a dual monitor. So now it's rather annoying. I can't remember what I did to make all apps automatically minimize upon clicking an app in the dock. Any help would be appreciated. So that John, we turn to you. Um, Dustin, I don't remember what you did either. <laughs> what do you mean? You weren't looking over your shoulder, John? <laughs> Not this time. Huh. If you wanted to look over our shoulder, well, we'll get to that at the end. But here, so I don't know exactly what he did. What he probably did is went into the terminal and probably issued some one of, one of these obscure write commands that writes to a certain plist key somewhere very deep in the system. There, there are a few ways to do this. The thing is, I, I couldn't find what it was, but there's a great compilation um, of... Uh, I'll call them secrets, Dave, because okay. this is exactly where you would go to find out about this and that there's a group that makes a database of secrets and it's at secrets.blacktree.com and they also make a pref pane. And so what did I do? I downloaded the pref pane, looked under doc and lo and behold, there is an entry under doc secrets and there's a checkbox and the checkbox is titled enable single application mode. That'll do it. If you uncheck that box, because, yeah, I, I, I so I don't think that's default behavior because I couldn't exhibit it at first. No, it's not. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when I when I clicked that box, it sounded like what was happening. And, and sure enough, if you click on the on the app, everybody else goes away. It was it was kind of jarring at first. And I could understand why well, you may want to do it. So secrets um, get secrets, uh, you know, a little caution, maybe not everything they have in there. Uh, is fully supported or is obscure enough where you may run into a situation like this, but, but it's the most comprehensive uh, database of all these, these little tricks that, that I have seen and they, and they put it uh, either online or in a very nice prep pane. So, right. That's what you do, Dustin. Cool. All right. Uh, Scott wrote, um, 
So we've actually got a couple things from a couple different Scots and a couple things from the same Scott. Uh, and he, he asked, he said he had a series of questions about what uh, we use on iPads as a, uh, as kind of in the road warrior realm. So, uh, so I'll ask his three questions and we'll talk about them uh, after that. So number one is what do you use as an office like program? I'm mainly looking for an app to do some light typing when I'm avoiding uh, taking a laptop. Number two, what do you use for charging these iDevices? devices? I have an iPad, two iPhones and an iPod nano that I use during workouts. Add my wife's iPhone and her iPod she uses, and we have a need for an iDevice charging solution. Number three, you had mentioned using an iPad back cover on a show, and I purchased a clear cover from that company, uh, which was HyperMac. Uh, since that was a success, I wanted to know if you used a screen protector. Okay, so number one for an office-like program, uh, I use, I have, well, I have Office Squared from Byte Squared, and also Apple's Pages and Numbers uh, and Keynote installed and those are kind of my regular apps if i need to edit uh word documents or pages documents those are those are the ones i go to however for what you're describing scott using an app to do some light typing when you're away simple note is the combined app and cloud service that i use it's a free app uh and uh but and the cool part is it's also a as i said a cloud service or a web service so you can create little notes and it just stores them uh, both in the app and then automatically syncs them up to simple note in the cloud so that you can get this data from anywhere. So if I type a little note on my uh, iPad, I get it on my iPhone and I can also see it on my Mac. If I go to the web and go to whatever the web address of simple note is, I've got it somewhere in my bookmarks and, uh, and it's just all right there. And it's really handy. You know, at WWDC, I was going to all sorts of sessions. I just started a new note for each session and I could just type right into it. And then it was magically synced. I can pull them up on my Mac now and uh, I don't need to find my iPad or, or, or whatever. So, so that, that's what I use for, for that. Uh, John, you have, I know you don't have an iPad, but if you have anything to chime in, chime in. Otherwise I'll just keep blazing ahead and get through Scott's questions here. So not for this, but for, for the next question, I believe okay. that has to do with batteries. I, I do have uh, okay. something I use. So cool. Uh, so for charging them, I use the call pod or the charge pod from callpod.com. Uh, they had sent me one of these a, a while back and, uh, and it's awesome. It, it's a, it's a, modular solution it it starts with a, a little uh round hub if you will and into that you plug in adapters for whatever devices you have and you can buy multiple adapters from them. and i think you can put six things off of this thing at once so you could get just a bunch of uh you know dock connector adapters and you're good to go i have dock connector i have the micro usb you know i i, I have what works for me and it's great. I plug one thing into the wall and, uh, and I'm, I'm good to go. I, I also travel with a uh, Kensington um, surge protector uh, that you plug in. It gives me three outlets and actually two USB outlets on top of that. So three AC outlets and two USBs. And it also gives some surge protection, which in a hotel I feel like is probably a good idea. So, uh, so I plug that in first and that gives me the extra two USB if I need them. So, so that's what I use, John. You've got, you said you got something, right? I believe this will work. Well, we had a, a number of devices listed here and I, I'm pretty sure this will work on all of them, but th this was something that uh, was given to me 
um, at a uh, at a Macworld a while ago, but it's the Richard Solo eighteen hundred. Okay. And it's an external battery pack, as the name implies. It's 1,800 milliamp hours. So I, I don't know if that'll give your iPad a full charge. It'll uh, certainly I think give... the iPad's 24, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it'll certainly give an iPhone a full charge. Yes. Or an iPod Touch a full charge. And so this is what I carry around with me. Uh, the reason I like it is that you charge it with a mini USB connector. And the other thing I like is that it has not only a flashlight, but a laser. So... I think that's pretty cool Lasers and uh cool. yeah so uh you know you can use it for a number of things the uh the price here i'm just looking on their site right now and actually i just saw they had a special but it's a 1995 for a single unit two or more uh 1696 so uh, i think it's good not only to have a backup battery and of course you can buy more than one but to have a backup flashlight and and a laser to uh torment pets with handy all right and then uh and then number three so uh, as far as screen protectors, uh, no, I don't use one. Um, I have a bunch of them and maybe someday I'll think, wow, I'm an idiot for not having put that on my iPad. But, uh, but it, it, you know, I, because I use a cover and I'll talk about that in a minute uh, that, that covers the glass when I'm not actually typing on the iPad, I really haven't had a need. Uh, so I haven't, I didn't have a screen protector on my first iPad and never had a problem with that. Uh, and then obviously I don't have one on, on my iPad too, but I am using a different case. And this is interesting. I, um, you know, I had Apple smart cover on there initially and I really liked it, but my big problem with the smart cover is that I found that, uh, you know, when you fold it up into like triangle mode so that the thing can sit up in, uh, in portrait mode, sorry, in landscape mode, uh, you know, kind of on, on a tabletop, it's, you've only got about what, maybe an inch and a half, two inches of stability there. And, and even that's not all that stable because it could come off the magnet. And, uh, and I found that to be a problem in two places. Number one is on an airplane where things are sort of rocky and bouncy sometimes. Uh, and the tray tables are, you know, rickety anyway, even if it's smooth flight. And, uh, and my iPad was always falling over. And then I noticed after about two weeks of having the iPad, my upper back was killing me. And it was because I was sitting up in bed reading with it, but the case wasn't holding it up. Uh, you know, when I just rested it on the, the covers or my, my lap or whatever. And, uh, and so I was holding it up while I read, I have since switched to what I find to be an almost perfect case for the iPad too. And it is, it is called the uh, spec. It's from spec products. Uh, it's the fit folio iPad two case. So it's a, it's a leather case. It, uh, the iPad two snaps into it. It has a cover that comes around the front um, and you can fold it in two ways. One to get kind of that low angle desk view uh, if you want to type on it and then you can put it in a, a higher angle, uh, you know, more perpendicular kind of thing where if you were going to be reading or watching a movie and the nice part is it's then stabilized on a platform that is the full size of the iPad. So it's totally stable and it, and it, I, I find it great. Uh, my only complaint with it is that this case is clearly built for the iPad too. I mean, it fits it like a glove. It actually makes, it doesn't add much thickness to it, which I really like, uh, but it doesn't use the magnets. So I have to wake the thing up as opposed to the, the, the case sticking to it with magnets and, and all of that. So that's sort of frustrating that, uh, that that's not there. Maybe, Maybe we'll see it in a future build, but, uh, but otherwise, so there, there's my, uh, that's my answer, John and, and Scott, do you have anything, John, before we, before we move on to, uh, 
comment number uh, one from Scott? Can't. Uh, I don't have an iPad, so I like. Okay. Uh, Scott then wrote it. So this is not Scott's first iPad that he's thinking uh, about this for. And here's why. Hi, John and Dave. This is your friend Scott down in D.C. How are you up there in the in the great Northeast? Um, I would say frozen north, but I guess we're out of the freezing time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was just finishing listening to 336, and I know you've probably done 337 already. Well, that's how far behind I am, just by one this time. And... You were talking about, you know, what would happen with your son if he, after he dropped, well, this is for Dave, since he dropped his iPod Touch and had to go groveling at the, uh, at the Genius Bar. Well, I did just that less than one week after receiving my brand new iPad 2. I went to pick it up and in one hand was the smart cover and the iPod the iPad was face down on the tile floor in the kitchen. I panicked. I called Apple Care. They told me that initially it's going to be a $299 repair and whatever, but go talk to the folks at the Genius Bar. I went to the Genius Bar. I was there. I was very humble. And he says, well, we're allowed to on a one-time basis to just replace these things. So I profusely thanked the gentleman who was very nice about it at 9 a.m. in the morning on a closed in a closed mall because the mall actually opens at 10 with all the mall walkers walking on the outside. And now I have my brand new iPad 2, 32 gig Wi-Fi, which is a really, really nice little toy. Anyway, I hope your son had as good as time with this as I did and learns a lesson that you drop it, it's going to cost you. This time it didn't. Now I'm being more careful. I just bought it back for this. Hopefully I won't drop it again in the future. Yes, this time I got caught. Next time it will be worse. Have a good one, guys. Bye. Thanks, Scott. Of course, everybody knows that it's very similar to the experience my uh, my son and I had when we when we took care of his uh, and we've got, we've been flooded with email. This is obviously not a, uh, a one-off thing. It, it is a all, but maybe it's a written, it's an unpublished policy uh, that they can do that for you at the, at the Apple store. If it's under some kind of warranty, even though the warranty doesn't explicitly specifically doesn't cover accidental repairs. Uh, James was another one of those who had, uh, had the same situation with uh, with both an iPad uh, uh, Nano, iPod Nano, and uh, and I believe he had something similar on his MacBook Pro. He says uh, the guy at the Apple Store confirmed that it was the logic board and some other components were also found to be falter, uh, faulty. After a lot of, it may take us a few days to get the required parts in stock as we don't usually have stock for these. He double checked stock levels and would you believe every component I needed was in stock, so they were able to repair it while I waited. This is very interesting to me that Apple re- replaced uh, parts inside a MacBook Pro, including a logic board at the store. I'd never heard of this before. I always assumed uh, hmm. I'd always heard and uh, and then assumed that everything uh, that required cracking open a laptop was sent out to the refer- repair facilities, which I think is it's usually Texas where it goes. But uh, but certainly sent out somewhere. This is the first I've heard of them being authorized to do that in the store. 
So that's that's interesting to me. I didn't realize that. Did you know that, John? I did not. Okay. All right. Maybe they, they have, uh, maybe some are stocked with them. Now, now yeah. I do have another uh, suggestion for Scott, and this is an accessory that I think both you and I saw demonstrated at the, uh, I don't know if it was the most recent Macworld, Dave. Yeah. I, I think it may have been. <clears throat> yeah, it was the most recent Macworld. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, um, and so what Scott needs to look at, which I, I think it's kind of an innovative uh, l- little product here. Uh, Scott needs to get balls. Eyeballs is the name of the product. I-B-A-L-L-Z dot info. And as the name implies, it's basically four, uh, four foam balls that you put on the corners of the device. And I think what caught our attention is that there was someone outside of uh, the Moscone with what appeared to be a real iPad. And he was taking it and he was dropping it on the ground. So he must have had quite a bit of faith in his product because <laughs> 500 based, bucks on, what I, based yeah. on what I saw, the, 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 the machine did just fine. So uh, it may make the thing a bit unwieldy, though. It looks like looking at their site here that they seem to also now have a sleeve. Um, but also lo- looking and you know, just the, the first screen they show here is, is a mom with, with the baby and, and the iPad. You know, that's just a, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Yeah, or a, tod- a toddler in a high chair, right? And and the mom, and you you just know the kid wants to grab this thing and just toss it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, may want to look at that product, uh, though. I'm, I'm sure uh, Scott will now exercise the alt, the, the utmost discretion in, in handling of this. But I'm still terrified of this as well, Dave. Yeah, that, that I know one of these days uh, I'm I'm going to fumble my iPhone and I'm going to hear that that terrible sound and. Oh yeah, I've dropped to... I've dropped mine, but I I do put a screen protector on the iPhone, and because uh, it's always in my pocket with things that are going to scratch it, and I don't want to have mm. a cover on the front, so I uh, I opt to do that. So you know, All right. uh, James actually had a couple of questions too. Number one, he says I have an old late two thousand five Mac Pro, which I use for my home automation, Sonos controller, iTunes streaming, etc. I also have a number of external hard drives, Drobos, holding my music and movies uh, and TV shows. And I have about three terabytes of music and perhaps perhaps six or seven terabytes of videos and TV shows. In the past, I tried using iTunes for holding all my music and movies, but just couldn't cope with the size of the library. What I need to be able to do is to deduplicate or consolidate my music and films and TV shows with various storage volumes. I have stupidly put my music in, for example, music slash iTunes one music slash iTunes two, et cetera, et cetera. Is there an easy to use tool that uh, will show me a simple list of duplicate files and folders? I don't have a magic answer for this. Um, If you want to consolidate things, which you mentioned, you know, iTunes will actually do that for you. It'll require, uh, you know, copying everything from one folder to the other, and it leaves a copy behind. So if you wanted to consolidate everything into music slash iTunes, uh, you know, you set that as your main one and then go into iTunes. I believe it's in the file menu, organize library, and then consolidate library. I believe, you know, actually, I believe I've got that wrong, but I'm I'm pulling up iTunes now to get that right for you. But there is a way inside iTunes to do this. It's file. Uh, oh, where are we here? Yeah. File library, organize library. And then you just click the consolidate files checkbox and hit OK. And it'll move everything in. Um, that that's one way of doing it. iTunes will then also find duplicates. Um, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on this, John? 
or any <laughs> listeners that have any thoughts, please, you know, tell us about them. What did I find? There are a few things. I remember we touched on this in the past there. I think one that I came across, Dupe Guru. That's a little bit finds duplicate files. But there, and this is a freebie, I think. Uh, or no, fair price. So you pay what you think is a fair price for it. Okay. So Dupe Guru, but there's a commercial product that is a... Uh, I'll... Darn. It, it, it is a general purpose duplicate detector, but it also has special modes for iTunes. And Okay. Uh, my Google Foo is failing me right now. Maybe I can find it. But um, but but there are uh, there are programs that that are smart enough to to. Yeah, right, well, you you to, search for one. I'll answer James's second question, great. which is a quick one. He says regarding the streaming of all this stuff to my Apple TVs, most of my content is in .avi or slash dot or or dot .mkv format. So I'm currently using Handbrake to convert the media into MP4 to make iTunes and Apple TV happy. Is there a way to make my Apple TV and iTunes work with other formats so that I can stream the media in its current form? Uh, th- there's a way to make iTunes play other formats and a way to make click to- QuickTime play other formats. And Perian is the name of that. P-E-R-I-A-N. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's a series of plugins uh, that work with iTunes and they kind of manage themselves. It's it's basically an invisible thing once you've installed it. And it's awesome. Uh, but as far as the Apple TV no, uh, it is, you know, a closed box. So there is no way uh, that I know of to add functionality to it like that. It's uh, you've got to send it stuff that it's going to be happy with. And, and that's kind of Apple's MO. Uh, there was a way to jailbreak the Apple TV one. I don't know. I guess there is a jailbreak for the Apple TV two. Uh, I haven't gotten involved in that, but um, I, I believe that's out there. And uh Yeah. And so, you know, presumably once you jailbreak the, the Apple TV two, then, then you could, you know, put some software in there to do that. But, uh, but that, that's the only way. So, all right, John, before we uh, talk about uh, iTunes, a little bit more about iTunes and Drobos from Kurt, do you have a, uh, do you have anything to add or, or are we looking for the show notes on that one? I would say tidy up. Oh, right. There's another one they came across and they claim to have uh, be able to search various libraries, including iPhoto, Aperture, iTunes, iPod databases and mail mailboxes. So. Yeah, from uh, TuneUp, right? I think it's from TuneUp uh, Media. I think it's from HyperbolicSoftware.com. Oh, okay. All right. At least that's where I am. Yeah, no, you're probably right. I think TuneUp's got something else. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, TuneUp, I. Well, yeah, TuneUp. Tune-up is specific to iTunes, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So. All right. So there you got a couple of couple of things to check on that. Uh, very quick one from Kurt. He says, uh, I've moved my iTunes and iPhoto libraries to my Drobo. Now, when I sync my iPhone and iPad, it takes 20 minutes for the sync to complete. I think this is because iTunes has to connect to the Drobo. Is there a better way? Uh, this is what I do. And, uh, and frankly, no, there, there's not in a general sense, the Drobo is uh, going to be as fast as its slowest drive. And then some, uh, the, the Drobo is not built to be a speed demon. Its main purpose is to be an archive that has a ridiculous amount of fault tolerance, as well as uh, the ability to 
expand in an even more ridiculously easy way. You just plug drives in. So that's where its strength is uh, in terms of reading small files from it and writing small files to it. No, it's not. It, in my experience, it's really not the most efficient thing in the world. Uh, but for me, the ability to have an iTunes library somewhere that can just grow and grow and grow, uh, it's worth it. So I just deal with the slower sinks. It's, it's not terrible, but yeah, it's definitely slower. That's kind of the, Kind of how it goes. Yeah. Uh, all right. How much time at, do we have? Look John? at the yeah. time. I, I, yeah, I, that's I, right. I think we're out of time. I think we're, I think we're out. All right. Well, we will. Uh, what? Well, what would happen, though? We can't leave, John, uh, because we're going to be away for, you know, probably a week and a half wow. or something here. Uh, I, got, I got a couple we, of minutes. We can't leave without at least telling them oh, how to right. get in touch with us. <laughs> Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Did you say feedback at MacGeekGab.com? If you have email, then I would send it to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Unless you're a premium subscriber, and then you can send it to premium at MacGeekGab.com. Special for you. You said premium at MacGeekGab.com. I sure did, and I meant it. You can uh, phone us at 206-666-GEEK, which is... Four, three, four. three. Sorry. Why did I do that? Why did, <laughs> Why I did you do you? that? We've had this timed for years. Let's try that again. You can call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is... <laughs> four, three, three, five. I deserve that. <laughs> yes, you did. You can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. John, where do you find us on Facebook? I think it'd be facebook.com slash... Mac Geek Gab. That'll work. And there's and there's this Twitter thing. My feed is John Efron. Dave's feed is Dave Hamilton. Pilot Pete's feed is Pilot Pete. And um, and uh, oh, who else? Michael Johnston, who who lovingly handcrafts the enhanced version. I'm I'm sorry. I took you usually say that. It's fine. But I thought I'd throw it in there. And of course, for all official news about the podcast, Mac Geek Gab, and for just general Mac news mac observer all via twitter.com that's right uh, and thanks michael indeed for creating the aac the bandwidth comes from cashfly.com the podcast marketplace includes those a5 speakers from audio engine stitcher uh, with the coupon code mgg yojimbo from barebone software pdf pen and pdf pen pro from smile notebook from circus ponies and of course drobo uh, all through Backbeat Media. And John, that's it. Everybody have a, uh, those of you in the U.S., have a very, very, very happy 4th of July. And uh, actually, I hope everybody has a very, very, very happy 4th of July. And if you have fireworks, well, one piece of advice. Don't mix fireworks and, and adult beverages. Don't blow your fingers off. Runaways, as soon as you light the fuse, and especially if you have a fireworks, Dave. <laughs>